Our scripture reading today comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, and then 9 through 11. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And then from 1 Corinthians, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. We must not put Christ to the test, nor grumble. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This is God's word. <clears throat> Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church, and we continue this morning in a series in the book of Exodus. Uh, particularly in these chapters here, 15, 16, and 17, which group together uh, a bunch of different material that uh, has similar themes. Uh, the question that we need to ask this morning as we approach this text is, where in your life, right now, as you came in in this room this morning, where in your life are you asking, where is God? Is he still with me or is he abandoning me? Why, why isn't he doing anything about fill in the blank? And you see that this is the question at the end of Exodus 17, at least at the end of this passage, verse 7, uh, look there. Is the Lord among us or not, they ask. And it seems like a harmless enough question, but is it? Because something sinister is happening with these people. This is actually the third in a, story of, in, in a, in a series of three stories about Israel's wandering in the wilderness after God rescued, rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And in all three stories, they face a crisis of some kind. And their, and their response in each case is to begin to grumble against Moses, as you see them doing here again in verse 3. So we've been talking about grumbling for a few weeks now because, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, that we are walking through the wilderness too. 
And so we are prone to the unique sins of wilderness wanderings just as these people were. Now, I got an email this week playfully suggesting that I might be on the verge of grumbling about you grumbling and talking about this topic so much in these sermons. And I had a chuckle at that, and that may be the case. Uh, and, and, you know, and it made me think, there's an old Puritan book on pastoring which makes the point that a pastor should never complain about his congregation to God because the Bible says there is one that accuses you before the Lord and it shouldn't be me. And I take that to heart. And so I love you. I want you to know that. You're a joy to pastor, but don't grumble, okay? <laughs> because a grumble if it is not nipped in the bud, almost always becomes something more. It spreads like an infection. In this, in Exodus 17, this isn't a story about grumbling. It's a story about what happens when grumbling escalates, where grumbling leads. It begins with grumbling, but it leads to something else. And the question at the end, which at first glance seems reasonable, is actually something very inappropriate and sinful. It says, look there again, they tested the Lord by saying, not asking, by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So it's not a question, it's an accusation. And the Bible has a lot to say about the sin of putting God to the test. Psalm 95, which we read a few minutes ago, refers to this event here in Numbers, uh, excuse me, in Exodus 17, and it says that they put God to the test. They put him to the proof, though they had seen his work in, in rescuing them so powerfully from slavery in Egypt. In Matthew chapter 4, in Jesus' own wilderness experience he was tempted to put the lord to the test by throwing himself off the temple if you remember the story there and he quotes deuteronomy 16 excuse me deuteronomy 616 which says you shall not put the lord your god to the test and so he he goes to battle against the temptation to sin by reminding himself of how inappropriate it is to do the very thing he was being tempted to do so where are you god can be a cry of faith which is good or it can be a demand, which is bad. And so how do you face the wilderness and not begin to put God to the test? How do you endure times where it seems like God is absent and wait on him and trust him and not begin to complain and become demanding? That's what this story is about. And man, we need that. You see, I mean, do you feel that? We need to learn that skill because so much of our lives are lived in these times like these people are experiencing here in these chapters. And so three things from this text very quickly this morning as we move towards the table. We want to see first, I think we're taught something here about when we're most tempted to put God to the test. Secondly, specifically what it means to put God to the test. And then thirdly, how it is that we can become people who refuse the temptation, how we don't, how we cannot put him to the test in those times where we're so tempted to do. Or if you want uh, the three points of the outline as I've given them to you in, in your worship folder, we're going to see how God first tested Israel. In response to that test, Israel tested the Lord, put the Lord to the test. And then thirdly, the way out or the resolution of the story ends when God himself puts himself to the test. So God tested Israel, Israel tested God, God tested God. Those are our three points. So let's just begin. Okay, first, we see that God is putting Israel to the test. So these people were moving through the desert. Verse 1, look there. According to the commandment of the Lord. 
So God said, let's go, and they went. He said, okay, stop here, and they stopped. He was leading them. They were obeying his commands, which led them to, verse 1, Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And now, this is week three. We should read that and think, oh boy, here we go again. Right? We've seen this. I've seen this episode. I know how this happens. I know how this goes. And we would be good to remember that in this part of the world, even today, water is life. And so this is where we are most tempted to test God. When obedience to God results in a test of faith. When, when we go, we find ourselves, because we've obeyed him, in a place where there isn't the basic necessities of what we need. And that's what this is. So if you're not a Christian, Christians believe that the events of our lives are not accidents. They are providence. They are orchestrated by God. And that includes the good times and the bad times. And the reality is, is it's easy to get on well with God in a, in a good time, but bad times are a lot harder because if he is in control, if he's all powerful and good and all of that stuff we believe, then can't we just avoid the hard stuff? I mean, why do we have to endure that stuff? Why command Israel to camp where there is no water? It makes no sense unless you understand what the Lord is doing. And the answer to the question, why would God do it this way, is what we've already seen, but probably need to be reminded of yet again this morning. And it's just this, that you and I, we will never know that God is all we need until we face the reality that he's all we have. You will never know that God is all you need. You'll never be able to sing the song we sang, right? Jesus is all I need, only Jesus, nothing else. You'll never know God is all you need until he's all you have. Sin is the search for happiness apart from God, a life without God, which is a tragedy because no such thing exists. The prophet Jeremiah, though, describes sin this way in chapter 2, verse 13 of his book. He says, we forsake the Lord, who is the true stream of living water, and we begin to dig cisterns of water for ourselves. The problem is they're broken cisterns that, in fact, can't hold water. They have cracks, and so the water leaks out. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for the broken cisterns of created things, borrowing from John Piper. In other words, the problem in our lives isn't that there is no water. The problem in this text isn't that there is no water. The water's there, right? I mean, we, we learned that by the end of the story. The problem is they're looking in the wrong place. These people, just like you and me, would rather have good circumstances, plenty of food and water, without God, than have nothing but have him. Because... They believe, just like us, that good circumstances and not God himself is the source of happiness in life. And so how do you learn the lesson? How do you learn where to really find joy and contentment, peace, and all of these things? How do you come to believe that God and not good circumstances is the source of true contentment and peace? You have to go into the desert. And the desert is the test. And it's why every single one of us in the room is probably coming out of or going into or right smack in the middle of some kind of desert experience because the Lord takes his people into the wilderness. Because we're all looking to create a things for life. We're looking to money, career, relationships. But the things we're looking to for life can't give life. I mean, the best job in the world is a broken cistern that can't hold water. The very best marriage will leave you thirsty and looking somewhere else for a drink. 
But what the Bible says is, is that there is a water that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. But it is not the thrill of career success or the love of a spouse or a child or the game-winning home run at the end of the game. And yet our hearts are set on these things. We keep pouring water into these things and it leaks out the cracks before we can even, even get a drink. That's sin. Sin is this obstinate looking to created things for only what, what only God can give. So how does he save us? Well, according to Exodus chapter 17, he does it by making us thirsty. Now think about that. He does it by letting you get to the end of all of those plans and still find that you're thirsty. Or he does it by taking away the things that you think will satisfy you so that you're dying of thirst and you have no choice but to look to him and learn to drink from him. The Lord takes extreme measures with his people. He led them to where there was no water because he was trying to lead them to living water in him. And so one of the things we learn that we just have to make sense of is that the place where there is no water is the place where you find the water that can truly satisfy you. Can I say that again? The place where there is no water is, in fact, the very place where you find the water that can truly satisfy you. So the most loving thing that God can do is to break our schemes of earthly joy, as, we, as the hymns that I quoted last week says, so that we might know that there's no joy there. He's, I mean, the most loving thing he can do is just get us to the end so we don't waste any more time trying to find joy from things that can't give you joy. There's no real lasting happiness and peace at a place like Elam. Do you remember Elam? Doesn't it feel like that was so long ago back in chapter 15, verse 26? This place where there's palm trees and 12 springs of water, right? You, you know, that this place where, oh, everything, we got everything we need. It's all good, and we can just kind of sit here and relax. There's no joy there, and you know how I know. I know because the people in this room make up the top 1% of people in the world when it comes to earthly joys. Almost all of us in the room have good jobs, decent jobs. We live in nice homes for the most part. No one, I don't think, if it's the case, you need to let me know because I want to do something about it, but I don't think anybody in the room is wondering where dinner is going to come from tonight. I mean, I was talking to Bob Allen's last week. He says, I don't get it. All of you Floridians complain about Florida all the time. Bob's from Chicago. He says, this is paradise. We live in paradise. Do you people understand? And he says, everywhere I go, Floridians complaining about Florida. I'm like, if they're complaining about it in February, I can't help you there. Now, it's September, I get it. But we live in paradise. You with me? Can I tell you a story that I just loved? I was in Chick-fil-A yesterday, and uh, I met two families that were here to go to Legoland that were day tripping to Orlando, and I lost my mind. I was like, that is the best. You mean you're staying here? This is a great place, you see? I mean, there's so much. We have, we have so much. And yet... It's not enough. And so it's not loving of God to give us more of what doesn't satisfy. Don't you see? Do you believe that? And that's going to go against everything your heart says, everything your heart tells you. But it's not loving for him to give you more of what doesn't satisfy. The most loving thing that he can do is to take you to a place where he is all you have so that you learn that he is all you need. And yet, when he begins to do that, let's just say we don't react very well, typically. When he's loving us the very best, that's the very time we are most tempted to test him. And that's what happens next in this story. The people respond to this 
great work that God is doing in their life. Not with gratitude, not with wonder, not with saying, oh, we've been here before. I wonder what the Lord's gonna do this time. Aren't you excited? Isn't it gonna be fun? Let's see what God does. No, they grumble. You'd think they'd be tired of that by now. But that's the thing about grumbling. You don't really get tired of it. It just increases and increases and increases. And that's what happens here. Notice the word change. This is something more than grumbling. It says, verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses. And then in verse 7, they called that place Massa or Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And that word means something very specific. It refers to a lawsuit. Charges are being the bringing of charges. And so the people are putting God on trial. And it changes the way we read the question at the end. Is the Lord among us or not? It is the accusation. It is the charge that they're bringing God to trial for. They felt abandoned. And so their grumbling has become something more than just harmless complaining. And in both verse 2 and verse 7 where the word quarreling appears, notice it's paired with the language of putting the Lord to the test. So Israel was putting the Lord to the test. And to put God to the test means that you make demands on him or you require something of him that it is not your right to require of him. To tell him, you try to tell him how to do his job. So in Psalm 95, that passage is so helpful. It says they put God to the proof there. In other words, they said, you know, you need to provide some evidence as to why you, you should be trusted because it looks to us like we could do a much better job of running things around here than you are. Despite everything you've done, he says, despite everything that I had already showed them, all that doesn't matter. It does, you know, you need to show some reason. You need to give me some good reason why I should obey you and trust you. Derek Kidner, who has a commentary on the psalm, says that it is a sour, skeptical spirit towards God. They refuse to take him at his word. They dismiss all of the evidence he's already shown of his power and faithfulness and love in Egypt, in the Exodus, at the parting of the Red Sea, at Mara, with the quail and the manna last week. How many times does the Lord have to do this? And yet they say, none of that is relevant to the present case. Show your evidence. Do something that will make us trust you. And the Lord says, well, I've already done that. If what I've already done is not enough, nothing I will do will be enough. C.S. Lewis wrote a book uh, which he entitled God in the Dock. And uh, in Britain, the dock refers to the, the witness stand. Listen to his explanation of what's going on here. He says, the ancient men approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now you hear this sort of accusation in the wider culture more and more after some kind of tragedy. How could God, a God of love, let something like that happen? Where was he? You know, why couldn't it have been different? If there, if there really is a God, shouldn't we be mad at him? Now the irony of, of that is when things are going well, nobody goes on the news and says, you know, things are going pretty great right now. If there is really a God, we should probably get down on our knees and praise him. Because it's the way the human heart works. Disappointments with God that happened 30 years ago feel like they happened 30 minutes ago. And the rescue that he worked 30 minutes ago for you feels like it happened 30 years ago. Because there's something wrong with our spiritual memory, see? The one unanswered prayer, the one time you didn't get what you wanted and you had to walk through something really hard that sticks in your heart a hundred times longer than every time he's ever come through for you. Because we have sour, skeptical spirits towards God, as Derek Kinder says. We are prone to put God on trial. 
to put him to the test. So, when God puts us to the test in the wilderness, how can we refrain from returning the favor and putting him to the test, which is sin? The answer is the last part of what I want to say this morning is that we have to see God putting God to the test. When he should come against us because of our grumbling, I mean, don't you think, shouldn't he just kind of like swat these people off the face of the earth by now? I mean, is anybody else kind of like, Moses is sick of them. Is anybody else sick of them by now? I'm sick. I'm sick of them. I'm sick of me, though. So, you know, I mean, I mean, you just, why is the Lord continuing to be patient with these people when he should come against them and us because of our grumbling and quarreling? He doesn't. And the rod that should come down on us in judgment, it comes down, but it doesn't come down on us. It comes down on somebody else. This is a judicial scene, Exodus 17. All of the language and imagery suggest a courtroom setting. Uh, and let me just show you a couple of those things. So first you have the people ready to stone Moses, verse 4, which is the penalty for being found guilty of a serious crime. So they've already passed ju- the sentence. Moses is guilty. They're picking up stones and ready to do it. Secondly, you'll notice in verse 5, the Lord says, take your staff, Moses, and that word really means the rod. It's, it's, the, you know, the, it's the symbol of judicial power and authority uh, that Moses had. And really throughout all of history. Uh, it, but this is the rod. This is the rod of God's judicial reckoning. The rod with which God subdued the kings and the gods of Egypt and saved his people. Moses held out the rod. You remember in the Nile turned to blood. And he held out the rod and the Red Sea parted. And so the rod is, is God's judicial power and authority on display and so there's going to be a trial third God says verse 5 take the elders with you so the elders were called together to pass judgments they were the jury in these sorts of cases so this is a trial that's happening here but the question that we have to answer is who's on trial Moses is not on trial though the people want him to be because he's the one that's got the rod which doesn't bode well for the people by the way but the people are not on trial either. They, it, it says there, if you notice in the text, it says they saw Moses coming out toward them. Now, can you imagine? They've got to know, okay, we've probably pushed it a little too far. And all of a sudden, Moses comes out with all of the elders, and he's got the rod in his hands. And they're probably thinking, oh, no, we're really in trouble. But what the text says is that he passes right by them, and he comes to the rock. And so they're not on trial either. Well, then who's on trial? And this is the key to the whole thing. You come to verse 6, and it's kind of, this is kind of hanging in the air, this question. This is a trial, but who is it that's on trial? And you come to verse 6, and God says this. Look there. He says, behold. Now, let me just stop there and pastor you for a minute and say this. When you see that word in the Bible, behold, it means it's something amazing, something unthinkable, something just otherworldly is about to happen. And you should slow down, and you should really pay attention, and you should try to take it in. You should probably, I would encourage you, when you're reading your Bible and you come to the word behold, stop and pray. Say to the Lord, give me eyes to see what's about to happen. I need it. I need that. So here's what I want to do. Can we pray that? Can we just stop for a second? And would you pray with me? So, Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and a heart to believe what you would reveal to us right here. This is life or death. This is, this is the whole thing. This is Christianity right here. And we are so slow to believe, and so help us. We need you. Help us help our minds to engage with this truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold, he says. <laughs> I can barely say it. I will stand before you there on the rock. And you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Now here's the thing. Moses is not going to be tried and sentenced. 
the people are not going to be tried and sentenced, so who? God says, I'll come out, and I will be tried and sentenced. And God stands there before them. It says, and that's a technical language that refers to an inferior in the presence of a superior. So nearly every time in the Bible, people always stand before God. God never stands before people because that's the right way of things. But here he says, I I will stand before you. I will subject myself to you and to your judgment. God put himself in the dock. He came and he stood before them on the rock. And he said to Moses, bring the rod down. And Moses took the rod and he struck the rock. He brought down the stroke of justice, but not upon the people who deserved it. He brought the rod of justice down upon God himself instead of the grumbling people. And God said, bring the justice for their sins down on me, not them. I will bear the penalty of sin myself. And then out came the water and the people drank. What does all that mean? There's, a, there's a, um, a play that was written by a German Lutheran pastor just after World War II trying to make sense of, you know, the German people's experience of, of the Nazi, you know, agenda and so forth called the sign, of Jonah, the sign of Jonah. And it goes through and tells the story that when the general populace began to learn about the death camps, they, they were horrified, but they said, that's, that's awful, but it's not my fault. It was the leader's. And so then they go to the leaders, and the leaders say, well, it wasn't our fault, it was the senior leaders. And they go to the senior leaders who deflect, and on and on, until they realize, well, you know, really, who's to blame? God's to blame. It's God's fault. He should be tried and judged for this. Why did God let, let something like this happen? Why didn't he stop it? And they put God on trial in the play, and they find him guilty, and they sentence him, and this is the sentence. Listen to these words. They say, let God become a human being, Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him be deprived of rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He himself must die and lose a son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. And that's exactly what happened. In 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle Paul writes about this scene right here in the Old Testament. He says this, he says, our fathers drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Do you see that? The rock was Christ. What does that mean? It means that what happens here points to Jesus Christ, that the rod of God's justice coming down on the rock instead of the people here, it's a picture of the cross. And on the cross, Jesus Christ took the blow of judgment. The rod of justice came down upon him. The sentence was passed, and hanging there, disgraced and ridiculed, he cried out, I thirst, and he got the cosmic thirst so that we could drink. And now he says to you and me and all who believe, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. And there it is. Jesus says, if we drink from him, we will have internal streams of water. It won't matter if we go three days in the desert with no water, because the desert won't mean no water. The water comes from within now. If you're a Christian, the water comes from within, not from without. So a Christian doesn't shrivel up and die in the desert from the streams of living water welling up inside of us and overflowing. We can actually become people who, when we go to the desert, we water the desert. That's the power of the gospel. And let me give you two ways that you can water the desert. Two practical applications as we finish this morning. For the one, it means you water the desert when you just refuse to grumble. 
when you see this grace, when you see God stepping into your place and taking the blow of justice that should have come down on you because of your sin, you won't ever question his heart ever again. How could you? How could you question a love like this? The streams of living water coming out of you is overflowing gratitude for all that God has done for you, and it will drown out the grumble. A grumble can't swim in gratitude. It drowns in gratitude. But then the other thing is, is you begin to water the desert when that question at the end there gets answered once and for all. Is God for me or not? The gospel answer is, yes, of course he is. God came against Jesus on the cross so that he could be for you in everything. So if you've hit a dry patch, it may not be clear what God is doing, but you can be sure about what he's not doing. Listen to me, Christian, listen to me. If you're in a dry patch, you may not know what God is doing. Let me tell you point blank what he is not doing. He's not punishing you. He's not irritated with you. You're not abandoned. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, God does not treat you according to your sins. And that truth is so central to the message of Christianity that here it is, all the way back here in Exodus and even before that. God can't wait to get to the New Testament to tell us about the way that he works with us. It's bursting out of his heart so that it's just everywhere in the Bible, but even in places like this, the evidence is just everywhere. And the truth for us is that nothing, nothing then can separate us from, from the love that is ours in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation, not distress, not famine, or desert or danger. And according to the Apostle Paul, that truth, that nothing separates us from God's love, that's what makes us more than conquerors. You know what it means to be more than a conqueror? You go three days into the desert where there is no water, no big deal. You water those places so that you and other people can drink. Can you imagine living like that? It's possible. Believe. Come to him to drink. Come to him for the bread and the food and the nourishment and the drink that you need. Put your faith in him. He will cause streams of living water to flow out of you. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, as we come now to your table, would you feed us? And would you give us living water to drink? Uh, Because we confess to you, we are so prone to keep going back to broken cisterns that hold no water, thinking surely, surely this time there will be water there, not acknowledging that the cracks just cause the water to seep out before we can even get a good drink. Would you help us? Repentance and faith are gifts, so would you give us the gift of repentance to turn away from the broken cisterns that we should know by now hold no water, and to turn to you and to believe in you And so to come to this table with expectation and hope in what you can do in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The way you bear your cross is to know that the real real crisis of the passage was not verse 1 where there was no water. The real crisis was the question in their hearts in verse 7 about whether or not what their, their, their circumstances meant that they had been abandoned or forsaken by the Lord. So the real trial in a desert time is not uh, that you're in the desert. The real trial is, is if the desert causes you to feel like God's left you. Which is why the hope of the gospel is a powerful hope in the sense that the, the question, if your faith is in Jesus, has been answered once and for all. God turned against his son so that he could be for you in all things. Is the Lord among us or not? Of course he is. Because of the work that Jesus has done. And so whatever it is that you are being sent now, whatever desert experience awaits you out there, the one thing you can be sure of is that he goes with you. And listen, if he's all you have, 
that's enough. Amen? And that's what these words promise. So reach out and receive them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.